Good evening, everybody. We're going to be getting going here. Everybody just say a prayer. I don't hear a bunch of sirens outside my house tonight. Somebody in the audience will understand that and hopefully get a good laugh. Let's let's get right to it because you know what? We never have enough time. It's just the way we seem to roll. It's how we go. Um, Nancy, let me know when you are free to talk. I know that you're not free to talk immediately necessarily. Just give me the heads up and let me know when you are free. Uh, we are here on the, oh, I don't even know what day it is, January 12th, January 13th, Friday or Saturday, depending on where you are in the world. We are going to talk about understanding genocide in Ukraine again, because you know what? It's what we do. And it's really about all I think about anymore. I think about other things, but I do have to say that trying to understand genocide and things about genocide occupies a whole lot of breath whole lot of my brain, a whole lot of my time, a whole lot of my energy, a whole lot of my effort. And you know what? I wouldn't have it any other way. How about you, Gina? How are you? All right. All right. Thanks. It's always good to be here. I always say that we came together for a tragic reason, but we are bringing light to the darkness through these conversations. I always learn so much and I, I thank everyone who participates and thank you for having me. I, it's an honor to have you with us, really. It just, I feel like I suckered you into it the first night, but you just, you keep sticking with us because you really like it. I appreciate that about you very much. I know that you have some ideas of some things that you want to talk about tonight. I'm actually rather excited about that. I've hinted that I thought, I think it's going to be a really good night. I know we want to get to the Belarus report. Everything that you and I have talked about is more important than the Belarus at the moment. And in the Belarus report at the moment, you know what I mean? It's there's important stuff to talk about. There are important ideas to try to talk about and exchange thoughts on. That's something we really hope that you guys partake in tonight. Something we hope that you really come up and share with us what you think, because these things are real important. Gina, I don't know if we're going to run across anything that's going to trigger anybody tonight. We don't have a mega thread. We could find last week's mega thread and put it up. And that very well may do, that may do for tonight, just because we'll see where we go. But I think tonight will probably be a lot like last week. And uh, and, and the information from last week will do just fine. So I'll try and get that. I've already it. done that. I snuck that in on you. See how you are, Nancy? I can't talk for about five minutes because I got to get something done. And then just, I did this and I'll do this and I'll... Look at you, G. And look at you, Nancy. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free from work now. Yay. How was your week, Nancy? It's a blur. I know the feeling for different reasons. Yep. All so right. I'll, I'll do a, a huge apology to the audience. I don't have a fresh thread. The one I've put up in the nest is the most recent one, which we added to last week. Again, as things come up, I will add to it this week as well. I'll have a fresh thread for next week. No worries. Then from there... I lost what I was going to say, but the thread that is up in the nest is also in my pinned tweet. If you lose track of it and lose it from the nest, you can always check my profile and find it as my pinned tweet as well. Because Nancy's very organized and like me. Um, it I'm only took me three months to figure out to do it or four. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, nobody knows what my notes look like. Actually, there's one person on the team who knows what my notes look like, maybe two, but they would scare you. Gina, do you want to start us off with a disclaimer? And then what is the question? What is it that you wanted us to talk about 
tonight. And if you want to tell us why, you are more than welcome to do that too. Sure. The disclaimer is that I am a journalist. <laughs> Strictly that. I'm not an international lawyer. I'm just a very... No, I meant the resources, not the disclaimer. I meant the resources. Oh, you want the resources? Shouldn't we do the resources? Everybody knows you're a journalist, Bina. No, but I, I, again, no. I do like to preface it with that, that, that we are here in good faith out of a true desire to learn, and we each bring strengths and capabilities. I am blessed in that I was able to speak to a genocide scholar this week and someone who's doing incredible aid work in Ukraine. So I, I wanted to bring those to the conversation tonight. But before we get started, it is true that just the subject alone, even if it doesn't get very specific, in the context of your daily life, then multiple crises throughout the world. I spent the early part of the morning writing articles on, writing an article on the, the Yemen situations. It can, we each are, have our own strengths and thresholds. You can think this isn't going to be that triggering and you just don't know if something does affect you more than you thought. Or as we go through the discussion we've seen in these previous discussions, they take turns that are sometimes unexpected for us. We can find ourselves very emotionally touched and impacted by what people share. In the interest of that, we, we do offer some resources that if you feel overwhelmed, if it's a little too much, first and foremost, take care of yourself, take a breath, step back. No, you need to be strong so that for yourself, but also for Ukraine, for human dignity in general. So it's important to take care of yourself. In fact, if people in general were focused on taking care of themselves and each other, we wouldn't have terms like genocide and we wouldn't have genocides in the first place. Of course, if you're in trauma or distress, the first thing to do and you feel that you're going to hurt yourself or you're in a medical or, or mental illness situation, definitely call 911 or the emergency number in case of an immediate emergency, whatever emergency number is in your country of residence. In the United States, and I believe this is also for Canada too, we have a three-digit hotline if you feel suicidal. That is the National Suicide Hotline. And that number again is 98. You can call or you can chat. We also have, if any of this material is triggering in terms of if you are a survivor of sexual assault, as I am, it doesn't necessarily have to be mention of something that is a sexual assault. It can simply be a feeling of powerlessness or frustration or rage or anger that can tip, trigger you. It doesn't need to be directly related to another person's story of assault. If you are feeling overwhelmed in that regard, you can call the Nas National Sexual Assault Hotline. 1-800-656-4673. That is also a call or chat option. In Canada, there are a number of mental health resources available at Mental Health CA. There's a specific subset for Ukraine. In English, you can text the word HOPE, the number four, Ukraine, to 393939. In Ukrainian, you can text to 1-855-450-2266. You can also text the Russian spelling of Ukraine to that same number, which again is 1-855-450-2266. In French, you can text Espoir, E-S-P-O-I-R, the number four, Ukraine, to 1-855-450-2266. You can also call Talk Suicide, and in Canada at 1-833-456-4566, that's a 24-7 number. You can also call 988 for Canada as well. They did switch over to that. There's a kids' help phone that 
in Canada that can be reached at 1-800-668-6868. The Hope for Wellness Helpline is 1-855-242-3310. Residents of Quebec can call 866-277-3553 for support with feelings of suicide. If you have additional resources that you think would be helpful for us, please do let us know so that we can add them to the thread. As, as we many of us here know, this war has also placed a tremendous focus on mental health. The United States in particular has been in the grips of a mental health crisis for a couple of years now, more than a couple of years. In Ukraine, Madam Zelensky, through great foresight, early on in the full-scale invasion, really undertook strong initiatives to proactively address the issue of mental health and trauma, anxiety, all of which factor heavily into the creating conditions that are untenable for life, which is one of Russia's violations of the genocide convention here. Mental health is very important, mental, spiritual, emotional, psychological, and certainly physical health. Hopefully those resources are helpful. Again, if you have more, do let us know. Thank you. Now, I am also going to say here, I'm going to throw this in here. Um, not trying to push any specific faith. I say all the time, I don't care who you are. If you pray to a doorknob, I don't care. But I will highlight, and I have said this on the space a couple of times, Gina has started doing a rosary at 6 p.m. Eastern every day. And then at 9 p.m. Eastern, prayer to the saints, St. Saints, Saint Michael and St. Patrick. It takes total between those two times about a half an hour out of your day if that is something you wanted to participate in. Follow Gina and keep an eye out for those spaces. They are all recorded and they are up on her timeline also. I have found that I'm not Catholic. doesn't matter. I am a person of faith. I do pray, but I have found myself that it is very calming, very relaxing, very meditative, very settling. And really the one at 6 p.m., the short one that's 10 minutes maybe, really helps to change my mindset and focus to get ready to co-host. And so anyway, I just thought I would share that because there's a lot of different effects and a lot of different ways that people cope. People are more than welcome to join you and, and participate, sit and listen to that. It is a very good thing. Just always note, it is for Ukraine. She finishes off. Please tell us the prayer that you finish off with because it is very specific in where you have gotten this prayer from. Sure. It's actually a prayer for Ukraine that was, I believe it was written by the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church in Kiev and disseminated through their various churches throughout the world. I know the version in English and I'm learning slowly the one in Ukrainian, but it is said at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in the Archaeopagy of Philadelphia, where I attend divine liturgy after divine liturgies. I think it's several, at several serv prayer services as well, not just the divine liturgy, but it is a beautiful prayer. It, it, focuses on Ukraine. It is a prayer for Ukraine written by Ukrainians, which is what I like the most about it. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely something. We include that at the end of every of every gathering on the spaces, the one at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time and the one at 9 p.m. Eastern times. So you're certainly welcome to tune in to hear it. I think I may have posted a copy of the prayer on my timeline. If not, I have a photograph. You have. Oh, I did. Okay. There you go. You can find it somewhere in Gina's timeline. Maybe I'll repost so, it again. Yeah, it could do that. Anyway, so yeah, so thank you. I wanted, I just thought I would mention that and, and let people know that if that was something that they were interested in, it was an option for them. Anyway, so the next thing that I need to ask you, Gina, 
and, and Nancy, tell me to shut up or butt in anytime you want. And I feel like I'm starting to interview you, Gina, and that is just not right. Please tell us the definitions of the week. I actually wasn't planning to do definitions. <laughs> However, why don't we, just to keep things really centered and focused, why don't we look at least the, the genocide convention and just remember, because especially Article 2C is something I had a discussion with this week with a very important person who's done a lot of really important work on the genocide in Ukraine. Again, this really came together around the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, this space. And we started to look at the convention, which was crafted or rather finalized on December 9th of 1948. Actually, how timely is this? Do you know, I just realized this. It entered into force on this day in 1951. January 12th, 1951 is the day. Wow that the UN's Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide actually entered into force. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that we are all here tonight in this space on the day of its anniversary, which would be what, the 72nd anniversary, is that correct? 1951? Sounds about right. 73rd? No, 73rd. <laughs> it's been a very long day and my... I, 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 I I was starting at a deficit with my mental math skills there. So I, I, I will point out that as I was going to bed this morning, seriously, as I was going to bed this morning, Gina was already tweeting. I was. I was. I know. It had to do with the genocide convention. Yes, it did. She's been up, she's been up a long time. <laughs> when I saw that Dmitry Peskov was shaking his finger at the strikes in by the coalition-led strikes uh, by the U.S. and the U.K. in Yemen and saying that it was a violation of international law. I took the occasion to remind Mr. Peskov and the Kremlin, whom I tagged in the tweet, that genocide is also a violation of international law. I felt it would be a service to them if I perhaps also included the full text of the Genocide Convention as a second tweet in that thread, which I did. Anyway. Speaking of the Genocide Convention, again, there are specific, this, the, the term itself means the murder of a people. It has two roots, a, a Greek and a Latin root. It was coined by Raphael Lemkin, who himself lost 49 members of his family in the Holocaust or the Shoah. He was trying to find the name for what had been called the crime without a name. And here are, here's the definition of genocide according to Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, which you can see online at the UN's website, un.org. You can do a quick Google, Google search, it'll come right up. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part, and that is significant, a national, ethnical, and that is the term they use in the English translation, ethnical, racial or religious group. As such, here are the five enumerations here. Killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Of course, we have seen all of this wildly violated by Russia in Ukraine. The following acts, just to go into the next section, Article 3 lists the following acts as punishable. Genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, 
attempt to commit genocide and complicity in genocide. If you read those again, and my preface, of course, is I'm not an international lawyer, but we are looking to talk to a couple of them at least so that we can really drill down on how this works out in terms of prosecution and, and what the, the full legal understanding of this is. But a plain spoken, plain English reading of this, and that is consistent in many ways with what the the, fa the crafters of this constitution of this uh, convention had in mind. They did not intend to make this into some burdensome tool that could never be implemented. In fact, the focus is really on prevention. And that, if you look at it in that third article, most of those items, four out of five of those items, or at least three of them, the fourth one could be taken as in the midst of the active commission of genocide. But they're more leaning towards the prevention. A conspiracy to commit genocide would tend to, which is the second one listed, precedes a genocide, right? You, you have a plan or you have at least some idea of we're going to go do this conspiracy prior to the actual commission of it. Direct and public incitement to commit genocide generally precedes the actual commission. It can continue, as we see with Russia. We see this continuous into genocide through Russian state media and propagandists and military bloggers and influencers. This has been taking place well before even 2014. This is a, a long project of Putin's to rehabilitate Stalin, to create, lay a lot of groundwork here for this and really very insidiously program, though they're not without complicity, I'm not trying to exonerate the, the Russian people, but I'm just saying that he really intentionally, as I said, laid a lot of groundwork to make this very palatable and acceptable to them. It still enjoys, from recent statistics, high support among the Russian people. Attempt to commit genocides. The, the idea you haven't fully committed it, but you are attempting to commit it. Could you argue that the buildup of troops along a border or that the, as we saw, the purchase of a vessel that perfectly fits this one port so that you can steal the grain days after the full-scale invasion, as we discussed in an earlier session about how the, Russia's attacks on Ukraine's grain facilities were not sudden. They were well-planned. Also, with the forcible transfer of the children, this actually preceded the full-scale invasion, and groundwork was laid for that. Actors, various agents in that process were coordinated, brought in. This didn't happen overnight. And the last condition there, complicity in genocide. Well, that kind of does speak to more the commission of it, that, that, that it's in place and you're complicit in making it happen. But it could also speak to being part of that planning process in some way. And again, we would have to hear what an international lawyer says, but evading sanctions, permitting even ships that program weapons that kill people, these are all things that have to get looked at and, of course, are being looked at, but that have to be thought through when we read this convention. I had the op I don't know if you want me to continue because I did want to mention who I talked to this week because it was really cool and really important. Well, and I learned a lot. <laughs> that's the thing is I didn't know if you wanted to mention who you oh, talked to this yeah, week. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I didn't know if you wanted to drop that name or not. Oh, absolutely. Not, okay, good. I have hinted a couple of times on the space that you have spoken to somebody that just, I'm jealous. What was it I said to you when I found out? I said, you have to call me and tell me all about it. 
No, it was. It and was, now you have to tell all of us all that this week. And it really was such a, a an incredible conversation for me. I really did enjoy speaking with. I had the pleasure and the opportunity to speak with Professor Christina Hook. At Christina Hook is the principal author of the one report that we, it's actually the second report, joint report from the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. We've been through, I think it's three of these joint reports, right? And if you add them all up, there were the two major ones, May 2022, the July 20 through 2023 one, and the sexual violence one, right? I think we're well, three with these. Was, I, I don't know if she was on sexual violence one. I don't think oh, she was, but she was the principal. She was the principal author of the July 2023 report. Christina Hook yeah. is currently just to what where she's at. She is the assistant professor of conflict management at Kennesaw State University School of Conflict Management, Peace Building, and Development, and she specializes in genocide prevention and international human rights. And she's an expert in Ukrainian-Russian relations, and she's a former Fulbright scholar to Ukraine. She's done a lot of field work there since 2015. She lived in Kyiv. She had previously served as a U.S. Department of State policy advisor for mass atrocity prevention. She was a non-resident research fellow at the Marine Corps University and a U.S. presidential management fellow. And she's currently a non-resident senior fellow at Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. We've often cited a lot of the work of Atlantic Council as, as well as the New Lines and Raoul Wallenberg report. Again, with just this, we got to speak for about maybe 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes. And this is in preparation for an article that I'm writing through the Cape Post on the reluctance to actually recognize, despite all these reports, despite in particular the New Lines Raoul Wallenberg reports, why people are so reluctant to call this a genocide. Of course, we talked about that here in this space a lot about Samantha Power's book, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. She has looked at this, it the publication of that book preceded both 2014 and the, the full-scale invasion in Ukraine. But she looked at what America's response has been. And unfortunately, a lot of times, most of the time, it's been a non-response, a real reluctance to, to acknowledge genocide. Christina, first and foremost, remind me that the goal is to prevent, okay? We don't want to be looking at genocide in the rearview mirror. We want to stop it in the first place. That's why these tools were developed. That's why the convention was developed, was not to say, hey, next time this happens, we'll know what to charge them with. That wasn't the point. The whole point was, please, never again. I will, I'll never forget who said it in this space. I, it was actually in one of the morning spaces, and it was several months back, and I didn't get the speaker's name, but whoever it was, and if you're here tonight, bless you for it, because it was so eloquent the way that speaker said, after World War II, there was such a hunger for peace, and we've lost that hunger. That was after all of those atrocities, which ensued right after World War I, where atrocities were just Staggering. It, it changed. I'm not a military historian, but everything that I've read said it just really fundamentally changed modern warfare. The levels of atrocities were just so horrific. But after World War II, we had that hunger for peace and we didn't want this to happen again. Unfortunately, the record shows that we have not, in any sense of the word, succeeded. In the course of my conversation with Christina, we were talking about, we were talking of, I, I had mentioned that while it was really curious to me that South Africa was quick to run to the ICJ and file charges of genocide with Israel, that I hadn't heard the term 
even among politicians who support Ukraine, those politicians in the U.S. who support Ukraine. This is really curious to me. It's one of the reasons that I am so annoying on X and I'm constantly tweeting out the text of this convention because I want to know why is it being excluded from the conversation? Why even among pro-Ukraine elected officials are we not hearing this? Some of the thoughts that Christina offered were this, and this also parallels which in Samantha Power's book, she mentions this point as well, war can actually mask genocide. By that, what's meant is people become very focused on the conflict, on buildings that get destroyed and property that gets damaged and casualties and and military equipment. And they don't see that it's actually a genocide. They start thinking, oh, these guys hit those guys and those guys hit back and then they hit back again and then more weapons came in and they kept... I don't see that what the pattern is deliberately creating conditions of life that make it impossible to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Russia is perfectly content, based on its actions and its words that we hear, to just continuously attack civilian targets. One village here, one city there, one hotel there, one port there, just over and over and over again. We aren't connecting the dots sufficiently to see that this is a strategy to erode Ukraine. It's it's like genocide by erosion. Christina didn't actually use that term. I'm not sure, I I don't want to speak for her and say that she would agree with it. That's just my summary of what's happening here. You are just trying to make it so untenable for them to live there. If all we ever look at it is in terms of strictly a military battle, which has its place. That's not to take away anything from the, it is a military battle. That's that there is that. But we also, at the same time that we look at it in that sense, have to look at it for the genocide that it really is. Again, a lot of it right now, although all of these conditions of the genocide convention have been violated, we have to really understand that why we're missing it. And are we content? In a sense, with just looking, no, no longer looking at the atrocities, maybe we've become so desensitized to them, we're just not really grasping it. And just viewing this strictly in terms of those guys are fighting and it's one step up, two steps back, it's a frozen conflict. And, and you don't see that, that, that the larger pattern really is still tending towards, it still is genocide because Putin does not care. He does not care. He has said that he will, he's been quoted as saying that he's willing to expend a whole lot of people to do this. I heard the figure 2 million. I got to go check the original source on that to make sure I'm quoting that correctly. You but are right pl- that it yeah. is 2 million. He's playing the long game. He'll import people from other nations, offer them deals to go to Russia and to fight in this. He is willing to put his entire, as he has done, his entire economy on a war footing. It's all in. He doesn't really care if it's five years, if it's 10 years. That does not matter to him. It does not matter. He's, he's spent a lot of time engineering this. And it's pretty much his entire regime, his entire time as leader of Moscow has been devoted to plans like this in Ukraine and in, in other, certainly in, in Chechnya and Georgia. He's just all in. So it's crucial that we get this. The other thing that Christina said, when I had asked her, in terms of journalistic coverage, what do you feel is missing? 
what do you feel that you need more of? She said, I would be very curious to hear what the motivations are. As soon as she said that word motivation, something really clicked in me, which was why are politicians supporting or not supporting Ukraine? Why are voters supporting or not supporting Ukraine? What, what's really going on? That's what we need to drill down on. Because if we can understand that, we've talked in previous spaces about empathy. And if this kind of extends that discussion, what is the motivation? Even if you're for Ukraine, do you really understand what's at stake here? Do you understand this is a genocide? Now, in a moment of frustration this week, I said to Prince, at this point, I almost don't even care if they, what the motivation is, as long as it gets the aid there. <laughs> There's a point where you think, we've got to save human lives. We cannot continue this. Even if you don't fully understand that this is a genocide, but that this is wrong and we need to support, I'll work with that personally. It is crucial, though, that I don't think we would hear things like, we'll support you as long as it takes if we really understood it was genocide. I just don't think we would hear that. If we really understood it was genocide, we'd be like, we're going to fix this now before anyone else dies. You're never going to do this again because we're marching you into the Hague as fast as we can. I wanted to invite folks to think about that tonight, share their thoughts on that. I don't, I, I don't want to take away from finishing the report because that is important. We have children that need our advocacy because it's not getting any better in that regard either. We've got to, we've got to get these stolen children back before they lose too much time of their lives. If we have time now, Prince Nancy, I would be very curious for your thoughts and any insights that listeners wanted to share in this respect. It's an interesting one to me too, Gina, because I know that's part of what has both baffled me and confounded me is the mixed signals that many nations are making just from a sheer diplomatic perspective. I know we're taking steps like the increasing sanctions and providing weapons and things like that. But I look back to when Ambassador Kislitsia, the UN ambassador for Ukraine, spoke in September 2023 at the Helsinki Commission for the, in the United States. He pointed out, as far as issues with the UN, that there's a challenge with our diplomats acknowledging that a problem exists. And I scratched my head on that for a second. But what he said is, how many member nations have in a formal session said, Mr. Russian ambassador, I forget the guy's name, Conehead is what I call him, your country's actions are not compatible with the criteria of membership in a formal session. It's only Ukraine who has made that statement. If you listen to them every time that they are in Security Council, they respect the president of the council and the other members and basically acknowledging the presence of the Russian Federation in the U.S. in the seat of the USSR. They're formally acknowledging that, hey, by your actions, you shouldn't be part of the membership of Security Council nor the U.N. And he took the group back to 1974's South African apartheid comparison, where South Africa was effectively made a non-voting member of the United Nations. They were still kept in 
so that diplomacy channels could occur, but they were stripped of their voting rights because of apartheid. Now we've got a nation that is committing genocide. They're still talking to them and respecting them in Security Council sessions the same way. Yeah, there's honestly, there's a lot of disrespect in their tone and there's a lot of shame on you, but they don't take it to the next step and they haven't yet. And so those, those mixed signals, I think, continue to further embolden Russia because it leaves them thinking that they have more avenues, even as the screws are tightening in other ways. I, and what frustrates me is it's so frustrating to see Ukraine not get the full bore assistance quickly that I know that we all hope for. And, and we can come up, our governments can come up with excuses for that across the board, but that means more people have died. Now we've got, honestly, Russia trying to put its tendrils out everywhere else. More people have died internationally across the globe because of Russia, not just the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are clear genocide, but the chaos and murder that they're causing globally is just astounding. And to have, I keep waiting for our diplomats to say enough is effing enough. And I'm not sure what it takes to truly get them there versus handling all of the instances as isolated instances. Go ahead, Gina. As you said, more people die when we fail to recognize genocide. And as both Samantha Power, certainly Christina Hook, I, I've quoted before I, Juan Sebastian Altamoro, uh, who was a Nicaraguan opposition leader and publisher who was exiled. I, I watched a seminar that he was in and I had to summarize it in an article. He said in this panel discussion that Ortega in Nicaragua, he is severely repressing his people, and especially the Catholic Church. He has it out for the church. Chamorro said in that discussion that Ortega is importing the technology of Putin. That is exactly what he said, because dictators keep an eye on each other and they watch. And I don't think this is not a hard sell. We all remember if we were unfortunate enough to be bullied as kids. We, we know what the dynamic is, that if you let someone transgress those boundaries, they will treat you that, that this way. This does scale up. Not everything scales up from the individual to the national and international level, but this is one of them. The reason that these dictators get to where they are is because people have allowed their boundaries to be transgressed. That doesn't, that's not to say that every person who is in living under a dictator is, is directly at fault. Obviously, there, there are a lot of complex and mitigating factors there. As those dictators rise to power, you only get there because other people have allowed you to step over them or to partner. They've enabled you in some way. And as the maxim goes, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. That's the thing. We owe this not just to Ukraine, but to human beings, both the ones that are here, the ones that came before us, and the ones that we hope are going to come after us to get this right. That this is this temporary, we'll just look away and see if maybe it goes away and we don't have to do anything if it dies down. 
to scale back down, you wouldn't apply that, hopefully, to the way you run your house. You wouldn't say, oh, the plumbing's leaking. I guess I'll just let it go and watch the game and then hope that it nothing, it just goes away. Or the neighbor's house is on fire, but I don't need to do anything because I'll just, you know, it'll just go away. This is not a way to live a personal life, and it's not a way to conduct a society, and it's not a way that we can conduct a global world order. And it's not a way that we as a species can expect to have continuity going forward in civilization. This is just wrong on so many levels. But our inaction allows this to happen. That's why I am firm in saying that I, with all my heart, based on the, the reports that we've read, and I wouldn't come out and say this if I didn't have the research and the material that we've been discussing in these sessions, that we have experts. This is what they do for a living. They have a lot of talent and a lot of experience collectively, and they're out there and they said, this is jide. So it's not like we're making a personal call here. We're citing best evidence, and there's plenty of it in Ukraine. The thing that I would like to know, and this is something I would very much be interested in finding a couple of international lawyers to speak to, at what point when you have knowledge that it is that there are atrocities taking place and you know that sanctions are being evaded and you're not doing everything that you can to stop it, at what point do you as a nation become complicit in genocide? If you, because knowledge is key to the whole basis of implementing the genocide convention, right? Genocide is committed knowingly. It's not an accidental thing. It's done with knowledge. That's been contested in the burden of proof that, and we've talked about this in previous sessions, and maybe it's worth a revisit in, in a coming session, the bar of proof for proving intent. And we talked, we went through a couple of genocide scholar articles where there was the level, the current level is something called dolus specialis. And it's just this high and extraordinary level where you pretty much almost have to have a memoir of the genociders saying, I decided to do this and here was my master plan for this. And it's just not the way, it's just not the way that it works. It's not what the, it's not what the authors of the convention, including Raphael Lemkin, were going for. And we have enough historical evidence of the process of the crafting of this convention to show, and it was a process and contested at points, but we have enough evidence to show that is not what they meant. They were thinking of this in a knowledge way, meaning that if you knew your actions resulted in any of these genocidal acts, that if you, can, if you took steps that resulted in these genocidal acts, knowing that your action would have that effect, that's all it took. You deny people food, they're going to starve. Deny people water, they'll die of dehydration. Deny people insulin, as Russians have been doing in occupied territories. They will die of diabetic ketoacid, which is a cruel and painful death. If you deport children and strip them of their identity, you will kill a national identity eventually. If you just wholesale bomb towns, attack places with missiles, destroy cultural institutions, destroy schools, hit maternity hospitals, destroy houses of worship, outlaw houses of worship, outlaw entire faiths in occupied regions. You are attacking this people at every single level. We know this. At what point, knowing this, do we become complicit in allowing this to happen? I don't have the international law expertise, but I suggest that the question I submit that question needs to be asked because there comes a point when you can't say this happened in some remote country that we had no access to. We didn't know. We truly couldn't get there. That's not tenable. We all know it. We all know it. 
There's just far too much. And the burden has become even greater as we have more technology for actually, for actually documenting this genocide. We didn't have the satellites that could show the destruction back in, in World War II. We didn't have that. You saw our technology constantly feeding us images of, oh my goodness, as with the Uyghurs, we can see the re-education camps being built, or oh, we can see the movement of these children, these camps, that Ukrainian kids are being taken out, and we can see the bodies in Bucha, we can see this. We have that now. What is her excuse? We've had more world leaders and journalists. I would love to see someone do a tally on this, a, a nation where there's an active genocide taking place, and you've had more people visiting it, more world leaders visiting it, and you still can't come up with a definitive that this is a genocide and take appropriate action, one does have to raise the issue of complicity. I'll leave it at that for the moment. Oh, no. I, <laughs> raising the issue of complicity is something I've done quite a bit lately. I have raged about the fact that we are complicit at this point. I do believe that we are. I think that there are things that we could possibly look at as little intricacies and a little small details where our lawmakers are ignoring and refusing to look at specific things because they don't want to use the word genocide because they think very foolishly that if they use the word genocide, then there are responsibilities that come along with it and that the responsibility to act. But realistically, they're wrong because the responsibility to act is even if there is a possibility of genocide, right? They are trying to work a system. They are trying to work a system where if we downplay things, if we don't acknowledge things, then it can't be as bad as it seems. And we don't have to call it genocide. And we can get away with not calling it genocide. So we can get away with not having to do anything about it. And we can go on our merry way and never have any consequences for it. It's one thing that Samantha Power says in the book is that politicians never always pay the price for sins of commission. They never pay the price for sins of omission. If a politician doesn't do something, very rarely do they pay the price for that. If they do something and it turns out to be bad, then, oh boy, do they pay the price. They would rather take the chance, do nothing, than do something and end up having to pay the price. Is it all a game to the politicians, to the people who should be doing something about this, the people who have the responsibility to do something about this, who put us in a position where we as a country have become complicit, in my personal humble opinion, where we have become complicit in a genocide, which at times is overwhelming. And Gina, you've heard me say it. I feel like it's getting to the point where I'm complicit in this genocide because I feel like I'm not doing enough. Like I can't get it through my lawmakers heads to be, to do something because I don't want to be responsible for this. I'm not complicit in this. You are my lawmaker. You are the one who was supposed to take action. It's your responsibility. All you're doing is playing a silly game so that you don't hold any, so that you don't end up paying some political consequence, which no politician has ever paid to begin with. Now I'm going to get really mad. I will just tell you, part of this is triggered by the fact that there is another missile attack going on in Ukraine right now. 
missiles have just launched from the Caspian Sea. There are upwards of 13 Tu-95 planes in the air. There are six of them that have launched missiles, which means there's another, there's more for more missiles and another round. It's going to be a long night for Ukraine, a, a long day at 6 a.m. there. It's going to be a long night here while I'm watching this, while I'm following this. These always happen when I'm co-hosting lately. They are frustrating to watch. These are the kinds of nights where I end up saying to myself, am I complicit because I'm not doing anything, not doing enough to help my country, to make my lawmakers understand that this is a genocide and it is their responsibility to do something about it. Sorry for going off on a rant there, Gina. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I know there are hands and I don't want to, I don't want to go on more than I should here, but I did want to take a moment to read some of the, some quick passages from Samantha Power's book. It gets back to what you were saying, Prince, and then it also adds a few other points. Again, if, if you haven't had a chance to get this book, uh, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, it won the Pulitzer Prize by Samantha Power. She started off as a journalist. She's now the head of USAID. This, it's just a phenomenal book. It's really considered just one of the classics on genocides. It, it, this does, this recaps what you were saying, but it's a point that needs to be made again. This is page 508 of the, uh, the one edition I have, and she talks about in her conclusion, what, why, didn't, why is this always a problem? Why does this never seem to get fixed? She talks about will, will, just that's it, the wills of the people and the political will. Here's what she says, again, Samantha Power, the real reason the United States did not do what it could and should have done to stop genocide was not a lack of knowledge or influence, but a lack of will. Simply put, American leaders did not act because they did not want to. They believed that genocide was wrong, but they were not prepared to invest the military, financial, diplomatic, or domestic political capital to stop it. The U.S. policies crafted in response to each case of genocide examined in this book were not the accidental products of neglect. They were concrete choices made by this country's most influential decision makers after unspoken and explicit weighing of costs and benefits. She also notes that they wanted to avoid engagement in conflicts of course, and then hope to contain the political cost and avoid the moral stigma associated with allowing genocide. They don't want to use the word genocide. I'm paraphrasing her again, as she says here, quote, because they believe they carried with it a legal and moral and thus political imperative to act. This next sentence is what really killed me, because how often have we seen this? She says that elected officials, quote, took solace in the normal operations of the foreign policy bureaucracy, which permitted an illusion of continual deliberation, complex activity, and intense concern. And she said that the U.S. record is not failure, but a success because, as she puts it, quote, troubling though it is to acknowledge, U.S. officials worked the system, system worked. When you think of all this, and the sentence just prior to that really hit me, that taking solace in the normal operations of the foreign policy bureaucracy, which permitted an illusion of continual deliberation, complex activity, and intense concern. I'm sorry, folks, but this should never have happened in the first place. If we'd done what we needed to do in 2014, we wouldn't be here now. Now we're going into year three of the full-scale invasion. You're telling me that these best and brightest minds 
that with all of their acumen, education, experience, contacts, resources, can still not look at a document that this nation signed. Now, the U.S. was late to the game in ratifying the Genocide Convention. It was a pretty gutted version that we came up with domestically, but that a hundred nations on this planet are party to this convention as signatories or ratifiers. We still, for all of this bloodshed that has ensued since the Second World War, we still can't get this implemented. We've only got not even a handful that have been successfully prosecuted since then. In fact, Powers notes that the only one, and this is a quote, Bosnia was the sole genocide of the 20th century that generated a wave of resignations from the U.S. government. She adds that it is probably not coincidental that this is the one case where the protests of the foreign servants were bolstered daily by sustained public protest outside Foggy Bottom. So that does give a clue as to where some momentum may be achieved. It really does come down to, in many senses, first using the word genocide and calling this what it is and being relentless about that. Because as we call it genocide, Russia is working very hard with its disinformation and propaganda to silence that. And also, we need to really demonstrate publicly. Respectfully, of course, I'm certainly not advocating anything that contravenes civil law here, but we do need to be much more public in our demonstration. Personally, where I am, we don't really have them anymore. We don't really have them anymore. You'll see people waving and flying the Ukraine flag in front of their house or, or with a sign, I stand for Ukraine, but I have not. I know that even down in D.C., the D.C. rally, that there is a handful of people that day after day will stand there, but it is so much smaller than what it was in the early days of the full-scale invasion. So I want to, as I said, step back and let some folks speak here and, and get some thoughts on, on what we've just put out there for reflection. And you basically took all the quotes that I was having run through my mind when I was saying what I was saying. And it was, it, it, it is one of the, one of the small bits that I was able to take the time to read today. And I found myself getting extremely angry while I was reading it. And it, it was, it was just like, and, and the thing that continually gets me about this too, is that this book was published in 2002. We've, 2002, we're not reading new information. We're reading old information but it's the same it sounds like it'd be like it could be written about what's happened today i listened to part of this chap of this part to the conclu this conclusion also and so obviously i wasn't able to make notes or highlight anything and pick out where it is on the page but there is somewhere in there where it mentions that it's like they're reading when they say never enough what they mean excuse me never again when they say never again what they mean is never again will there be another Holocaust. Never again will there be a Holocaust against the Jews in Germany. In, in very small, defined, there will never be a Holocaust. Not that there will never be a genocide, just that there will never be a Holocaust. There's a difference. But the reality is there is genocide. There have been how many genocides, even just since this book was written, that in it leaves me speechless sometimes, but I need to go on to people. I, I, we could go back and forth for a couple of hours ourselves, and we don't need to do that. Go ahead, Love's Democracy. Thank you. 
I was going to go all the way back to my my thoughts on the hesitation of calling it genocide. When you say the will, I, it really ties in with what I was going to say, which is just a comment that there's been some discussion here. Maria report, I'm not usually here at this time, so different segments, but about the lack of any kind of sacrificial added for every child, I think calls it a, a wartime mentality or somebody does. I got that from somebody that this, we, we don't want to give up. We don't want to be the one without eggs, right? We don't, we just don't have this idea that it would be okay for us to do without luxuries and maybe even some necessities in order to save lives. And, and I'm talking about like individuals, citizens. I often feel hopeless about my representatives and trying to get them to do anything. But it seems like if we're willing to sacrifice more as the individuals, then maybe we'd have more of a sacrificial attitude as a country. I, I think a lot of it, we don't want to go to war. As individuals, we don't want to go to war because we don't want to lose people. We don't want to have to give things up. We don't want to go to rationing. We don't, you know, there's a lot of things we don't want to have to do. And our government seems to be hesitant. We we want to take everything in little itty bitty baby steps. And I'm I'm not that patient. So um, and as far as the next question you asked was, when do you become culpable? I would say that it's the moment that you decide it's a genocide and you decide not to do anything about it. You decide not to use the word genocide. You decide not to stand up. If you're a government, you choose not to recognize that and, and intervene. The, I, you you got to have, if you decide, hey, we're going to do something about this and it takes you a couple months to get the troops ready, and the end of the genocide comes within that couple of months, that's the gray area. As soon as you decide for sure that you're not going to do anything, that's instant to me. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Thank you. No, there, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. And I don't even know how to put it into words, but that's, that's, let me think for a minute. James, you had your hand up. Go ahead. Uh, okay. A couple of things. Just first, I think that it's necessary to recognize that Biden did talk about genocide back in April of last year in Ukraine, that is. And I'm doing a little bit of Biden whispering, if you will, and also saying that he said a variety of things over um, the course of the war. He said, first, as long as it takes, and I think that was very settling to Ukrainians who understand wars, especially where they live can be a long time. And he's also said that our goal, our objective is to have Ukraine win, which means that is they are victorious in battle, gain their lands, are sovereign and free, and are able to deter aggression after the war. Then finally, which shocked some people because it was out of context, was as long as we can, I believe that is his warning to us that He's not ultimately able to fulfill a long-range promise. He could even get this agreement, a security guarantee, 
agreement in place, but someone else can take that from him. That's just to say, I think the man recognizes there's genocide and as leader, he would like to do something. I think he also recognizes and his legal staff, I believe, recognize how fraught all this is. As things stand right now, a huge proportion of our youth now believe that Israel has committed genocide. I think we understand enough to know that things are not quite that way. This pretense that Russia used in 2004 and that South Africa is using, not probably not alone, makes these cases hard to pull apart. There's a lot even more to cut through to use genocide. And I was stunned to see some people saying about the Belarus report, human trafficking, because then, okay, it is, but it's not genocides. I just think there is a predisposition to look at this and as a odds thing. What's the, what are the odds we can do this? What are the odds that we can get a conviction somewhere on this? I think that's problematic in and of itself. I think I said it first, I'm as guilty as Biden is in that sense that I'd never heard Biden say this, but in, in the case of Ukraine and Israel, it is a weird blessing that those were external genocides. The neighboring country did it and it invokes the UN charter article seven, and that gives a reason and a way for us and all, any other country helping Ukraine to help out. We're doing something. We are intending and we are actually affecting some amount of prevention of genocide with what we do. That I think is one of the things we also need to realize is that we're not completely just barking at the moon here. We're getting, I think, heard a little bit on it, on the genocide point, but more as importantly, we're helping now through our nation to stop this genocide by fighting a war, a legal war. I think I made my points. Thank you. I got a couple of things to say here. I'm really glad it, Joe Biden said genocide six months ago, a year ago, whenever it was that he said it. I don't want to hear it from six months ago. I want to hear it every day. Come out to your bully pulpit and say, Russia is committing genocide in Ukraine. We are going to support them for as long as it takes so that they can be victorious in getting their country back. That's what I want to hear. People will forget that he said it a year and a half ago. You, me, the people in this space, we follow these things. We keep track of these things. You go ask Joe Blow on the street. Do you remember if Joe Biden called what's happening in Ukraine a genocide? They're not going to remember from six months ago, a year ago, a year and a half ago. They're not going to remember that. They're not going to know that Joe Biden said that. We know that. I want to hear it. Okay, maybe not every day. Every day would be great. Twice a day would be even better. Once a week, I could live with that. Anything less than once a week, I'm not happy with at this point. That's just me at this point. I appreciate no, that. Prince. Yeah. And Prince, I'm right there with you as well, too, because I think the thing that I recognize as we've gone through this research is that particularly when it comes to the kids, Russia has been stealing Ukrainian children and re-educating them to be Russian, to be Russified, 
since 2014. That's almost 10 years now of a genocidal act that we did a little bit of sanctions and said, yeah, okay, that's good enough and stepped away. Because of that, and I don't care who was president when or doing what, that means that now and since the full-scale invasion, that was the time to bang the drum and continue banging the drum to Prince's point is you've got 10 years of lack of momentum behind current action that takes a lot to get a population to turn around and recognize and say yes government we're comfortable with you taking this action on behalf of society and we're not there yet that's why we've all got to keep pushing our representatives to, to say, we're holding you accountable because this is not acceptable to us. Here's why. Because they need to have that pressure on an ongoing basis as well, because we need them banging the damn drum right along with us, too. That's where I think my frustration is that there was a lot of momentum that a lot of lack of momentum that needed to be overcome. The government has done that partly, but it's just not enough to have it back on the third page of the news and not coming out of our top officials' mouths daily at this point because every delay is killing more people. We know that, and we know that every day, and I think, Gina, to your point, Every day, it's easy for most people to focus on, well, this is attritional and positional warfare, which means that soldiers are going to be dying on both sides. But what it also means is, and we hear the heartbreaking stories, we hear about the corpses on the Russian-controlled bank of the, ne of the river that have been left to rot because they don't give a shit about the civilians. The Russian occupied areas do not give a shit about civilians. They don't care if they live or die. And that I think is the hard part for me is that every day that goes on in this attritional war, more and more civilians are dying and more and more Ukrainian children are at risk of being taken away, russified, and eventually turned into soldiers against their own nation and their own families. That's just monstrous that our lack of will would put us in that position, would put the world and humanity in that position. And that's, that's why I insist on more. No, I agree. One of the things that you, that you said made me want to say one thing, a couple of things, one thing, and then I actually have a question for Dana. She's got her hand up anyway, so we'll go to her after this. Just one thing that you, that you got to keep in mind is Russia has been doing this to children in Ukraine, children from Ukraine, Ukrainian children since 2014. Do the math. That means there are Ukrainian children who were taken in 2014 who were now on that battlefield, who have died on that battlefield, who have been injured on that battlefield, who are fighting against their own countrymen against Russia. They're trying to do it with ones that they have taken now. We saw that with Vodan. We saw, we've seen that with other people. If it's happening to the ones that we're hearing about, how many have we not heard about that? 
is something that needs to be paid attention to. Are we really doing something? Yes. Okay. We have been supplying arms. We have been supplying weapons. We have been supplying money. We have been supplying munitions. At this point, when do we see that happening again? I'm not quite sure, at least not from our country. That's a whole other story and a debate I really don't want to get into. But to say at this point that we are providing Ukraine with these things, I don't think we can say that at this exact time. Now, Gina, I did want to ask, James did mention a link between human trafficking and Belarus. I know that this week was there was Human Trafficking Day, and I thought I wanted to see if you had any thoughts or any input on what he said about that and then whatever else. Go ahead. Sorry. No, that's okay. I, I actually don't because I was focused on another point, but it's an excellent point. Actually, I would like to, if not later tonight, then in another session, look at that because... That's, okay, maybe sign it because it is, we had International Human Trafficking Awareness or National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. That's the U.S. Congress designated that day. It was January 11th, right? They designated that day in 2007. There was the Wear Blue campaign. January itself is a whole month dedicated to human trafficking awareness. In the Catholic Church, we have an actual, along with January, we in the U.S., we have a day in February, February 8th, which is an international day of prayer for victims of human trafficking. A lot of women religious, nuns, sisters in particular, are very much at the forefront of this advocacy. That day actually occurs with a Catholic saint, Josephine Bakita, who herself was a slave who had been trafficked and then eventually won her freedom. To the point about human trafficking, what I will say is this, this comment right now, that any time that you destabilize popula populations, you are going to have a greater risk of trafficking. We've already heard that at different points, that as the Ukrainian population has been internally displaced and externally displaced, there is a greater risk, particularly for the women and children, to be trafficked. Again, any time trafficking preys upon vulnerable people who do not have strong social supports, maybe they're isolated from their families or they just don't have strong bonds there or they don't have families, there's any number of reasons, but... That's what traffickers, those are the victims that traffickers prey upon. And the act of genocide that Russia is waging, this genocide that Russia is waging on Ukraine, the idea is to tear apart families, literally, to isolate them, to kill families, to separate them, to pull apart the very fabric of Ukrainian society. That is very much the goal here, to destroy the identity but to also pull apart the fabric of society. As people have been forced to flee, it does place them at greater risk. But I was going to back up for the, the other point that I was going to make, and, and I introduced this with a caveat because I, I know in a previous space, I know we've got people of different nationalities here, and, and this involves a conflict that it was between Ireland and England, and I happen to be of descent of both. I just am putting this out there not to offend anyone but to, this could have been said anywhere and it still would have been a valid comment. I don't want to sideline the discussion into another time of violence, namely the Troubles in Northern Ireland. During the Troubles in Northern Ireland, in 1971, there was a rather infamous statement that was made and it did really cause an uproar. This was when the British Home Secretary at the time, Reginald Maudling, declared that the situation in Northern Ireland at that time amounted to what he called, quote, an acceptable level of violence, end quote. 
That's the phrase that I want to hone in on. Not exactly where it came from or yet. I, I don't want to sideline. Like I said, I know this caused some problems in a previous space and I'm certainly not here to offend anyone. As I said, I am of both Irish and English descent. Acceptable level of violence, I think, is a key concept here because I think that's what we are willing to live with, broadly speaking. I think that is true in the United States. I think that is true in many other nations. I think that is true in the international community. In the United States alone, again, not to introduce an issue that's going to sideline the discussion, but simply to say there is no reason to have the levels of gun violence that we have. I'm not trying to get into a discussion about gun ownership rights, but there is just no reason to have the levels of mass shootings that we have. I have interviewed people who have perpetrated those shootings, okay, as teenagers and have been involved in those shootings and have lost friends in those shootings. This is not making anyone happy, okay, put it mildly. We have normalized this. We have normalized this to the point where, just to take the gun violence as an example in the United States, time after time when we had shooting after shooting, people were identifying, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like academics were identifying this dynamic, just the average person could see it. You'd have tragedy, you'd have outrage, hashtags of thoughts and prayers, calls to do something and prayer vigils, and then it would die down. And another shooting would take place and it was, how could this happen? More prayer vigils, more thoughts and prayers hashtags, more righteous outrage, more let's do something about this. And it doesn't happen. I think that we have to look at that and factor that into this unbalanced, effectively non-response we've had to genocide since the Second World War. In the case of Ukraine, it's as if we have accepted, and that's why it's very dangerous to hear people and, I, and journalists, look, I'm one of them. We have to be very careful in how we present ongoing atrocities. Because the problem is people, number one, lose context after a while. They're hit with information all over the place. If, if we don't constantly put this in the context that this is not something that just happened, this is not something that started two years ago, this is something that started in 2014 and is preceded by centuries of Russian aggression against Ukrainians, and a previous genocide already that's documented and at least recognized now, the Holodomor, when Stalin starved, what was it? Like the estimates vary, but it's as high as nine million, seven to nine million Ukrainians through collective, you know, farming. Again, that context is so essential, so that we don't, that we challenge that acceptable level of violence. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable when it's gone on this long. Again, it gets back to that thirty thousand foot view that Christina Hook was encouraging us to take when I spoke with her, look at the pattern. What's the pattern here? The pattern is the attempt to to totally destroy the Ukrainian people, to totally destroy them. Putin does not care if one single Ukrainian ever lives again. He just wants to march in, take that Kerch Bridge strategy, which is the world's biggest building code violation, and just ram it right across Europe. He doesn't care. It takes a lot. I still, when I look at pictures of occupied Crimea, I, I just look and I think, well, that takes a lot of chutzpah to be able to march into another country and not only march in there, but then start doing major building projects. Really? How does the world let this happen? How does the world let this happen? I think the Kirk Bridge is, and our alarms are going off now. Yep, mine just went to. Mine is set to, I have not my air raid app on, it's set to the, the view region because that's where I- Can you hear me? Let it, yep, can you let hear it go for a second. Yep. Yes, I am. Let it go for a second. Every day, every day, every day. 
That is what people in Ukraine have to listen to every day, multiple times a day, day after day, day after day. Why? 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 I want to know. Believe me, if I had a chance to interview Putin, I would. I would look him in the eye and I would say, tell me why you want to destroy Ukraine. Why? And I would look at the rest of the world and say, tell me why you allow it. Absolutely. You know what I did for part of the day today, Gina? I added a region. For a time when I was awake, because sleep, when you only get four or five hours at night, sometimes is precious. I still left the Raviv on all night long, 24 hours a day. When I got up this morning, I said it to Kharkiv also. So how many times did an alarm go off for me today while I was awake? I didn't even bother counting. Tomorrow I might do it for Donetsk, because that goes off maybe even more than Kharkiv. Every single day. What a luxury we have to be able to just say, turn it off and go on with our day. Turn it off and roll over and go back to bed. I'm sorry if you weren't done saying what you were going to say, but you take a breath. And I wanted to say that because it's important. I had somebody, I was talking about it just like this a couple of nights ago. And somebody asked me for the links for the app and I sent them. And the next day they messaged me and said, I installed that and I set it to Donetsk while I was at work all day. It kept on going off. And my coworkers kept on asking, what on earth is that? What are you doing? By the end of the day, they were like, that happens so often? They were amazed. What an educational experience for his coworkers. It's just absolutely amazing. Finish what you were going to say, Gina. I apologize. I'm all Canadian for interrupting you. No, not at all. Really, that I, I, again, it, it's a question of not normalizing this. This is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. None of this is acceptable. None of this is necessary. We have allowed that to happen, especially in the West. We have allowed ourselves to be cowed by, I don't even know what, previous fears, unrecognized reckoning with genocides in which we were certainly complicit, certainly complicit, active in the case of the indigenous people in this nation. We've talked about this in previous sessions, that we need to be able to honestly reckon with our own sins so that we can go out and stop other people from dying. It shouldn't stop us from stopping other people dying. We shouldn't say we messed up too. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. This is human life. This is human life and human dignity on the line. Is there anything else worth fighting for? Again, I write for a living, and I can't tell you how many times I fail to find the words fail to find the words to fully capture the anguish, the frustration, the sheer disbelief that I, I sometimes feel because that, that this has been permitted to go on this long. Not just this, but other genocides too. If we don't get this right, what hope do we have for other nations, for other, to stop other genocides? What hope do nations, again, I, I have many friends. I was with some friends tonight from the Dominican Republic. That's not a big nation. It doesn't have a huge, it's not a nuclear power. It doesn't have a huge army. If Russia is permitted to do this, to march across Ukraine and Europe and take whatever it wants, what and other similar authoritarians are looking and saying, well, they got away with it, why not us? 
if this is the way we're going to run the world, then what hope is there for any nation at this point? What hope is there for any nation? Unless we stand up and live up to the, the laws and the commitments that we, in one of the worst moments in human history, had a moment of reckoning and said, never again. It's as I tweeted the other day, never again has become yet again. But what will yet again become? I'll, I'll leave it at that for now because I don't want to, I see we have a lot of hands up and I definitely want to hear what folks have to say. Thank you, Gina. For every child, go ahead. Thank you, Prince. I have uh, something that I read uh, a few days ago. It has to do with our responsibility. I would like to read it again and then comment on what Nancy said about momentum uh, with the general public, if, if that's all right. I don't know if you want to indulge me in that. Go ahead. Okay, I'm bringing it up. Can you still hear me? Because I can't see anything but the screen. Yep. Yep. Uh, I had made a comment about uh, our responsibility in another space, in this space at another time. Somebody called me on it and they said, "It's would I please be specific and make myself clear? Because it sounded like I was saying it was all right for us to do nothing. I responded to that and it took me several hours to put words together. This is my answer to her in justifying what I had to say and showing that I didn't mean we should do nothing. It, it took place as Christopher was just changing as co-host and he needed a bit of space to gather things together and begin the, the his segment. I'm writing to her my best effort to fill space for Christopher during co-host change today, which was uh, January 6th, to be more specific and to and cite the Gettysburg Address that I took a stand for uh, at that time. I, I And I am quoting from the Gettysburg Address, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. President, that's the end of the quote for the Gettysburg Address. President Biden said that he is with us. He wants to get what we want done passed. He cannot do it alone. He needs our voices to be heard. And then back to the Gettysburg Address again, government of the people. I take this as my marching orders to have my voice heard. Biden requires our voices to empower him to act. He cannot do that alone. We have our part to do. If all we do is talk about what the press or the president or Congress says or does, we're not doing our part. Democracy is a conversation. We speak. The press, the Congress, the president, listen. Ukraine needs to be heard. We are their means of being heard. How we can help Ukraine is to use our platform to blast their voices. We are the voters, the constituents that have a voice. And then I said, I sighed and said, that do for starters. Quote me if you like. I must sleep sometimes. Let me get back to where I can see everybody again real quick. 
that is coming very deeply rooted from a soundbite, uh, 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 just a fragment of a comment that my dad made about our responsibility to for doc, democracy to continue. He said each individual generation has to secure democracy for themselves. No generation can secure it for the next. That said, we are the body politic. I am no longer, and this has really just evolved over the last few weeks, but I'm no longer envisioning Congress as a governing, as the seat of government or the executive branch as the seat of government or even the judicial branch. What I'm envisioning is the American people as the body politic, these other branches, uh, these branches of government and the press as being voices for us in enacting what we express our desires to be. And back to what uh, Nancy said about momentum, bringing the American public along because the president requires that. I have been really working on clarity and bringing clarity to myself and to people that I talk to and people that I text. And I have jumped away from the present, realizing that oftentimes in trauma, words have trouble getting through a trauma situation, but music pierces the, pierces the fog. And in realizing that, I'm realizing that the entire world has been traumatized by the events of the last several years. In order to pierce that fog, I have jumped to something that is certain, that hasn't been touched, that, that is acknowledged and documented and not trying, to, not trying to argue about the present. I've gone back to the past and used it as a foundation for conversation. I've used, and I've done that with a hashtag. I'm sorry, I'm a Texan. This is the way Texans do things. Remember Holodomore. Most people don't know what that means because I began studying global hunger in 1993. And until this year, I had never heard the word Holodomore. Realizing that I used the hashtag, remember Holodomore, I'm also realizing if it took me 30 years to hear that word, that I couldn't expect the people that I, that I interact with to have any knowledge of it. I added the hashtag, understanding genocide in Ukraine, to give it a reference, a point of reference. I most often tie those two hashtags together. I was highly successful for the very first time this week. A, a precious friend online for the last 15 years, I think, was calling me to task about another issue of genocide in another arena. I wanted to make it known that I was focusing on Ukraine and I wanted to give a basis for and a reason for why I was giving Ukraine priority. I said, nine million Ukrainians starved to death in the Holodomor genocide. And those were the, I think those was the first time that the, the, that phrase Holodomor had, had reached their ears as well. I said, because of Holodomor, because 9 million Ukrainians starved to death in that genocide, this present ongoing genocide will be, will be, if Russia should succeed, a drop in that bucket. I said, this is urgent to me. 
and I will not short it in any way. I think the momentum will build, and I think the momentum must build, but President Biden needs for us to do that foundational work in order for him to be empowered to act. And by skipping to something that is recognized, that is documented, and that is spoken of unequivocally now by by journalists and, and people who are, are speaking in public, Holodomor, there's no question. It's unknown, but the fact that it happened as a genocide is without question. That is my way of cutting through the fog. That is my way of building momentum. And it's my way of being able to speak with without criticism for my actions. Slava Ukraine. I'm really proud thank of you for every child. For every child. I definitely want to thank you for that. I think that you've been able to step back and come up with a graceful and very effective way of presenting that. And I thank you for that. It uh, definitely was well stated. And I'm glad you shared that with us again tonight. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Crap, go ahead. Hold on, just okay. I was, yeah, I was 38 years old when I heard about Holodomor. It was, I don't want to say what the year was, but it wasn't that long ago. I imagine going through my whole life or that much of my life without ever even he hearing about it or knowing that something like that happened. We just aren't taught about it. We aren't, we just, it's not talked about by people who should be talking about it and should be teaching us about it. Going back to Love's Democracy, you were talking about sacrifice, us needing to, sa or us sacrificing and needing to be able to do that. With this, we don't even have to sacrifice, but yet we aren't, we won't do anything. Imagine if we had to make big sacrifices it would be even harder to make the decision. What would we do? Would we just give up about, about it? Would we make those sacrifices? It's looking like we wouldn't when even we don't have to make a sacrifice and we're not doing anything. And this whole thing could lead to the biggest thing that we don't want to sacrifice. That's our children in the military because if it's not taken care of now, They'll be fighting, probably. Hold on, just I'm trying to go over my notes. That's basically all I wanted to say. Is imagine if we really had to sacrifice, and here we are. We don't have to make the sacrifice. The people of Ukraine have to make the sacrifice, but we still won't do anything about it. Why? Doesn't make any sense. Anyway, back to you. Thank. I am just going to take a minute to give you guys an update. Of course, as we said earlier. When the alarms went off, there is currently a nationwide alarm. I have heard of ballistic missiles, of course, along Donetsk, Kharkiv, probably Sumy. I don't know that I read that specifically, but definitely Kharkiv and Donetsk. There are currently 13 Tu-95s over the Caspian Sea. There are five Tu-22s in the air, and there are three MiG-31s in the air. If you've been following Ukraine enough, you know exactly what all of that means. And what that means is there are a lot of missiles in the air that will be putting Ukraine in, in danger. We will see how things progress over the next little while. But I just thought I would give you an update. 
and I'm trying to keep an eye on it while keeping track of the conversation. I'm going to go back to throwing things around my desk. James, I think you were next. Go ahead. Yes. For every child, thank you for repeating that statement. I got to hear it the first time and here again, reinforced it. I think you nailed it. It, it is up to us. It's not up to them. It's up to us. I'm down with that. I think what, what I think has been going on has been for the longest time, it seems like a systematic desensitization to the violence that we see around us. It does not feel like it's just accidental. It feels very much contrived, unfortunately, somewhat by our legal system, by letting things happen or not, our lawmakers who let things happen or not, which that's our, still our responsibility. We live in a governmental system in the United States that lets, honestly, the minority rule by design of the, the way that we do democracy, essentially. I, I don't want to get hung up on that. I am so glad that you, for every child, reinforce that Biden has, isn't bad in and of himself. He's not doing enough. Okay, fine. I can agree with that, you guys. I can agree with that, but we're, we're not doing enough. And we collectively, but I, I do understand that this is, this is a hard thing to get to. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it's really hard. And I do, and I, do, I haven't read Problem from Hell. I've not. I purchased the book and I cracked it open and started reading it, but not far. So I can't say the way you guys can about it, but I can see how it's difficult and how, here's what I would say anyways, even at this stage, I'd say, yes, I think we should be charged for genocide. And yes, I would also consider having ready the human trafficking charges and the war crime charges and the all the atrocities against humanity or whatever. Because in the end, I want it to stop. I also, more importantly, I think, is that it isn't just, we can't ignite a fire under people without getting to them. I think this breaking the pretense that of what is genocide and what is not is essential here. I really do think that's an essential thing without it. How can you get people to go along? How can you get them to agree if we can't agree on what is and what is not a genocide? That, that alone takes a lot of work. I agree. We have to figure out how do we make it work? How do we, and your points about the bureaucracy, bureaucratizing it being enough, that's, that's really scary. So I'm running on. Thanks, James. No, I appreciate that. I know exactly where you're coming from as well. Terry, and then back to For Every Child. Hi. Every time I listen in here, I end up with so many thoughts in my head, it gets a bit confusing. But if I can get across my first thought and then see if I can move on. Initially, I was thinking about the fact that one of the problems is that if our governments recognize that there's a genocide happening, the reason why they don't want to recognize it is because then they'd have to do more about it. Am I right in saying that, Gina? Yes, that's one of the kind of escape hatches for not recognizing genocide because the convention, once a genocide is recognized, the genocide convention requires the parties to the convention to stop it. They do have to prevent and punish they recognize that whether committed in time of peace or in time of war, genocide is a crime under international law, which they undertake 
to prevent and punish. That's definitely right. one way of avoiding it. Am I right in thinking the Genocide Convention, there's only certain countries that have gone into it or accepted it or taken it all on board? And 153. My... There's 153 nations that, have, that are party to that, including right. the Russian Federation, which signed as the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. What about the UK and the US? The US, yes, and the UK. If you go on to the United Nations has a list of the treaties and the signatories of, of its different treaties, and the UK is on it, as is the United States. We were the United States was late, and Lemkin himself, Raphael Lemkin, who coined the word genocide and who was instrumental in getting the convention drafted, was stunned that it took so long for the US to ratify the convention. He thought that they would be immediate. Actually, it was it was after his death before the U.S. got around to ratifying it. Am I right in thinking it was 1940 that came into being? It came into being in 48, and then it went. It came into force in 50... What did we say? It's, I had the 51. 51. 51, right? On this day, on the 12th, January 12th and 51 is when it took entry. It was entered into force. Because one of my thoughts is that, yeah, all of these countries are sidestepping the case because we might have to step in and do something. And my thoughts are that there are, when we think about the number of genocides that have actually happened since then, and I can only, I'm only aware really of a few of them because I've been so pig ignorant over the years and too involved in my own life. Like we often say, it's happening over there, it's nothing to do with us, without fully understanding what genocide actually means. That there is a country or a state or a dictatorship that wants to do away with another type of people in its entirety. Now, hopefully, even though there have been genocides, they haven't necessarily been successful in wiping everybody out. That brings me to another thought, which is whenever we talk about the genocide in Ukraine, particularly on the likes of Twitter and stuff, people, what about this? What about Rwanda? What about Serbia? What about Israel and Gaza and all of the rest of it? Maybe one way that makes me think that there are a lot of people around the world that are aware of genocides that affect them personally. But what we need to do is to find a way to get our governments to say, we're going to make sure that there are no more genocides that are even going to start ever again. Never mind about having to stop one halfway through, which is so difficult to do, but we have got to try and change the agenda a little bit into making sure that there is no possibility of any dictatorship of any sort trying to start a genocide ever again. We have got to, and I think as every child said, it, it is down to us as the people. It also made me think about when Prince Heather was talking about the fact that it ought to be mentioned every week on the TV. But we have all learned through what's been going on in Ukraine how easily people get I won't say fatigued because I don't think it is fatigued. It is bored. People's attention span isn't good enough. Anyway, oh, it's too heavy a subject and I've got other things to be doing. Also, at the same time, people like something dramatic. So when everything's struck up in Gaza and Israel, oh, something new to get excited about. 
the moment it turns too nasty, people turn away and, oh, can't we have a bit of good news for a change? We have to find a way at the grassroots of getting people that we know more involved in it to actually build it all up. I think for every child's idea of just talking very calmly to everybody, but helping to make them realise that, okay, we are fighting for Ukraine, but in fighting for Ukraine, we are fighting for any other possible genocide and all previous genocides to be recognised. I think maybe collectively we ought to, we ought to collect them all together and let people see just how much there are dictatorships that have been trying to genocide a people just because of fanaticists like Putin, like Xi Jinping with the Uyghurs. And I don't know who it was, but the only one that comes to mind at the moment is Rwanda. But then I know there was some more in Serbia and various places. I quite know where my thoughts are going, but it's about how to get more people involved. So a bit like anybody that has been in, in any way connected with war has more empathy. So anybody who is connected with any potential genocides in the past, we might be able to move them on board to not just sort out the genocide that is currently happening in Ukraine. Yes, that has got to stop as soon as possible, but we want to try and stop it ever happening again. And we want to get acknowledgement for any other genocides that have happened. I think that's as far as my head goes at the moment. Thanks, Terry. Go ahead, Gina. No, absolutely. It's interesting. You raise an interesting point about this. What about this genocide or what about this atrocity? And I want to use an analogy of a woman I know who heads up a, a food relief network in the Philadelphia area. I interviewed her several times. She actually used to be a colleague of mine. I remember one time asking her about, because there were a lot of ministries and, and agencies in the area that were doing the same work. They would all come together at different events and they partnered a lot. I said, do you ever have, especially the one had a really big marketing budget and their billboards were everywhere. I said, do you ever find it, it to be a kind of stepping on each other's toes or do you ever have any competition in what you're doing? She looked at me and in all honesty said, when you're just trying to get people fed, it's pretty straightforward and it's pretty basic. We don't really spend a lot of time competing with each other as to how we're going to get that done. I noticed that same sense of kind of compassion and humility and just let's get the job done attitude among this particular group of people who worked in this in simply getting food to people who are food insecure. The reason I bring that up is when it comes to genocide, when it comes to people saying, what about? I found a lot of times now, of course, there are in some cases, people have been so badly traumatized by atrocities in their country and they felt abandoned and there are legitimate reasons why they feel like I can't focus on anything except this one right now. I think even among people in that situation, you will find those who really understand the full horrors of genocide are not sitting here trying to figure out my genocide's bigger than yours or mine deserves more attention than yours does. Very often, a lot of the people I've encountered, at least, who have said the what about, frankly, I haven't seen them evince a whole lot of concern for on a consistent basis for a number of causes. It becomes very convenient to say, what about, when you can find that convenient example, a lot of times it's an example that's been advanced to you by Russian propaganda that is actively trying to sow disinformation, disinterest, 
hostility and just disregard for this genocide in Ukraine. Frankly, for genocides everywhere, because it's a very inconvenient thing for a totalitarian regime to have to deal with. They don't want people's attention. They don't. Why do you think North Korea is as closed off from the world as it is, right? Dictators don't tend to like having people counter their actions and hold them to account. In terms of the what about is, and that's something I feel very strongly about. Again, I've seen that used just well many times, far too often, as an expedient way of shutting down the conversation. Because the assumption is, well, you can't solve this. What makes you think we can solve that? That's not acceptable. Because again, we're talking about life, death, human rights, human dignity. If we can't agree on those things, we're not going to really get a whole lot of work done here on the planet, folks. What you basically reduce this to is the law of might. Might makes right. If you can get it, go for it, get away with it. I don't care who gets killed or hurt in the process. That's essentially what we were reducing ourselves to. Not only is that a regression of democracy, that's a regression of civilization itself and of human dignity. There comes a point when there is no such thing, it, you can't hide behind acceptable level of violence. We saw it, but we didn't really want to take any action because it would have required something of us. What do you believe in? That's what this comes down to. What do you believe about human rights and human dignity? I don't really care what your faith is or what it isn't, what religion you are or what you're not. I don't care what your educational level is. I don't care what your physical, mental, emotional abilities are. I don't care about any of that. You're a human being. This is as basic as it gets. You're a human being on this planet, which is a very tiny planet in a very big universe. If we don't all stick together, it's not going to work. That may sound simplistic, but at the end of the day, this is what it comes down to. I think the fact that we're seeing such a number of conflicts erupting in different parts of the world at this time, and we're seeing documented, data-driven analyses that show democracy has been steadily declining for the past at least 17 to 20 years. If the alarm bells aren't going off, I don't know if you're even capable of hearing an alarm bell at this point. Thank you for letting me add on to what you were saying there. I think that's something that I've hit. That's a roadblock I've hit too many times. And I drive a truck. I tend to just throw it into four-wheel drive and keep on. The way to do it, too. Terry, let me just uh, tell you really quickly if to, that was a very good question as far as what countries have not yet ratified or agreed to the genocide convention. At the bottom of the mega thread that's in the nest and also posted, pinned on my personal profile, you'll find a link to the genocide the UN's Genocide Convention fact sheet from 2019 that we reviewed in one of our early sessions. And it is a very good primer for the convention itself, what states at that time had not yet ratified or receded to it. And it's a very small set. If you're looking for big country names, you're not going to find them there. They've already ratified. And then the key facts about the genocide, when we go through the definition each each week, it covers that as well. So that's a very good fact sheet. Uh, if just for a quick down and dirty summary, I also provided the link to the UN's um, Office on Genocide Prevention and the responsibility to protect where you can get a lot more information as well. So I, I know there's so much to digest there. That's why I always go back to the fact sheet is just to 
rebalance myself if I need somebody to just grab it. If I need to grab a quick fact to just answer for somebody, I still go to that as a go-to resource. Go ahead, Tina. Real quick, because I know for every child has their hand up, but I wanted to say, Terry, too, one other thing occurred to me while you were speaking. We've mentioned this in a number of sessions. Genocide is a process, and it's not a process that has to go to its conclusion. Dr. Gregory Stanton, back in 1986, actually developed this, and it's called The Ten Stages of Genocide. I'll just quickly read through them. You can see this at genocidewatch.net, or you can just Google 10 Stages of Genocide, and it will come right up. It's on multiple sites. But as he puts it in his intro here, again, I'll be quick about this. Genocide is a process that develops in 10 stages that are predictable but not inexorable. At each stage, preventive measures can stop it. Again, looking back to the convention, that's what that's really about, prevention. Christina Hook said that many times in my conversation with her this week. Stanton also notes it's not a linear process, and some of these stages can occur simultaneously. Logically speaking, the later stages should be preceded by the earlier stages. They build on them, but all stages continue to operate throughout the process. That's the other thing. You still hear incitement to genocide, even as the genocide is going on. Just watch Julia Davis News and watch the, the horrific translations of Russian state propaganda night after night, calling for the deaths of Ukrainians, laughing at the deaths of Ukrainians, calling for the invasion of Europe. It's just it's, it's so fantastical that it's, it defies, it, it defy it sounds like the soundtrack of hell, if you want my honest opinion. To go into the class, the uh, 10 stages here. The first one is classification. This is where you're in the us and them mode. And you've picked out race, nationality, religion, sexual orientation, something. And you said it's us and it's them. Then you have symbolization. You give names or symbols to these classifications or you distinguish them in a certain way by what they wear. That's something that takes place, that process takes place in non-genocidal contexts, because of course we, we have culture, we have things that distinguish us, our, our flag colors, our national dress, uh, we have certain symbols that certainly the trident represents Ukraine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when, that that, when is that used to dehumanize, for example, the yellow star that Jews were forced to wear under the Nazis. That would be an example of that. And you have... You have hate symbols, the swastika. That would be another aspect of symbolization, stage two. Stage three, discrimination. Then this is where you start using the law and custom and political power to deny the rights of groups. We've seen that in Russia itself, which has restricted religion so severely against its own people. Lack of freedom of expression. If you discredit the army, off to jail you go. In Ukraine, once, once Russia got in there, Back in 2014, all of a sudden, the, in the eastern section of the country in particular, Ukrainian language was outlawed and identity, all of that started. And then it's made hard for you if you don't, if you don't accede to that. Again, in the occupied territories, we're even seeing things like insulin being denied to people, um, along with the atrocities, the, the straight up murder and deportation. Now, and this is really, this seems to be like the the tipping point where you stop looking at them as a human being and you start calling them insects, diseases, animals, all of that, that, that desensitize the genocide to actually committing the genocide. You have to somehow distance yourself from the fact that these are human beings, just like you are. That's how you can pill so easily as if you do not see them as human. I just remember one video I saw, it was 
some sort of Russian propaganda, Russian women talking about, I don't even think that this was a true story. I think, to be honest, that they were making it up, that it illustrated the point that she said that she had encountered a, a young Ukrainian child of six years old. I don't even want to repeat the language that she, and this was in translation, there was a subtitle on the video, but the words that she used to refer to a child, it just was beyond belief. She even says that I could not even call him human which is a logical error because she used the pronoun for him. So you did call him human. And as a sidebar, you'll notice with genocide, pay attention to the quote unquote logic because it falls apart really easily when people are committing genocide. That was Russian propaganda. It's spin the wheel on Putin's cause of the week for trying to destroy Ukraine. Satanism, it's Nazism, it's the West, it's NATO, it's every excuse in the book. Anyway, the, the Remaining stages of the 10 stages of genocide. Stage five, organization. Now, okay, now the, the, this is where you're making a plan. And it's usually done at a state level. That a lot of times militias are used. Stanton notes that militias are used to deny state responsibility. And, and this is where militias, genocidal militias, he recommends should be outlawed. So you really have to pay attention when you have extra governmental forces. It's, it can lead to incredible abuses. Stage six is polarization. Now you're really trying to work your propaganda to say, we are isolating these people. We are marginalizing these people. They are not part of us. If, even if you have not physically confined them, you confine them in terms of language, privilege, you forbid intermarriage, social interaction, all of that. Seven, stage seven, preparation. Now this is where you're into the actual planning of the commission of genocide and the killings. This is where Euphemisms are often used, Stanton points out, such as ethnic cleansing, purification, or even counterterrorism. Again, words to pay attention to when you hear that, because it, it could well mask genocide and certainly ethnic cleansing, though it is technically not genocide, uh, you know, under international law. It's certainly something that is very close to it. Then uh, stage eight, persecution. Now you've actually started to separate victims out, create maybe death lists segregate into ghettos or deport into concentration camps or confine into areas that are not arable so that they are basically being starved. Massacres can take place at this point. This is the stage at which Stanton recommends declaring a genocide emergency. He says, this is a big yes. If the political will of the great powers, regional alliances, or UN Security Council or the UN General Assembly can be mobilized, armed, international intervention should be prepared or heavy assistance provided to the victim group to prepare for its self-defense. Humanitarian assistance should be organized by the UN and private relief groups for the inevitable tide of refugees to come. In stage nine, you have extermination. And that's, as Stanton puts it, that becomes the mass killing that is called genocide. He notes that it is, quote, extermination to the killers because they do not believe their victims to be fully human. And the 10th stage is denial. He calls it the final stage that lasts throughout and always follows genocide. It is among the surest indicators of further genocidal massacres. The perpetrators of genocide dig up the mass graves, burn the bodies, try to cover up the evidence, and intimidate the witnesses. They deny that they committed any crimes and often blame what happened on the victims. 
They block investigations of the crimes and continue to govern until driven from power by force when they flee into exile. There, they remain with impunity unless they are captured and a tribunal is established to try them. There it is, the 10 stages of genocide. Again, genocide is process. Genocide is something that is not unavoidable, that we can stop and that we've had the power to stop and that we continue to have the power to stop. I wanted to, I know we've gone over these resources before, but I think they bear repeating as they come up in conversation. Absolutely. I've also added to the bottom of my thread, I've added that link with those 10 stages, as well as a graphical view from the United Kingdom's Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. And I've added that graphical view into the nest as well. You've got a few different resources there. I think the other thing I would add that I've been thinking about recently is when I look at Russia's history and the systemic nature of many of their atrocities over hundreds of years, I, I realize that what I anticipate us being likely to see, and of course, I'm not a geopolitical expert nor a Russian expert. I'm just looking at patterns here. Remember how after Stalin died, all of a sudden, all of the horrible things that had been done, like the Holodomor, were basically blamed on Stalin. It was all Stalin's fault and blah, blah, blah. The Russian culture and the Russian society never really had, and pardon, I don't want this to sound blasphemous, but they never had a come to Jesus moment. They were able to stay in that denial stage. And my concern is that at the time that Putin does die, if they have not had that cultural come to Jesus moment, it will continue to be in denial. And all of a sudden it will be Putin's fault. And therefore he's gone. So everything's fine again, right? We risk repeating this cycle again, 50 years from now, whatever the timeline is, that cycle will continue to repeat until the denialism can be addressed in this case. Go ahead, Gina, and then we'll circle back to For Every Child. So real quick, along with what you've just said, one of the most heartbreaking things for me to see was the closure of Memorial, which was the one group in Russia that was dedicated to actively identifying and memorializing sites of Soviet atrocities. It's been a longstanding problem. You know, Putin outlawed it. I think it was back in January of last year or maybe the year prior, but it was, no, maybe it was about a year into the full-scale invasion that it was just, it was just outlawed. That's because that memory is so, un we don't want to remember. We have to forget and we have to suppress. But interestingly enough, along with just blaming Stalin, again, Putin has actively worked to rehabilitate his image, to rehabilitate him. And when people are not held accountable, when we don't look at history and challenge the narratives, then we allow ourselves to be led into fantasy that can be invoked in very dangerous ways. Without getting political, I have a lot of problems with just the phrase, make America great again. Because I, as wonderful as I believe the United States is, though far from perfect, I can't think of one period in this country's history to date when there weren't serious marginalizations 
of people and serious human rights abuses. I say that as an American who is not at all ungrateful, or, but I'm being realistic here. No one was fully, this is why we're coming up on the remembrance of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We, we know his speech. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its calling, meaning he knew it didn't. And that's what he was doing. He was trying to get the United States to hold itself accountable to its self-espoused, self-articulated values. He wasn't, he believed in the United States. He believed the United States could be all that it was called to be. It had to live up to it. Again, what hope is there for nations that would have silenced such prophetic voices as Reverend King? And, and that's exactly what Russia does. We, my fear is, as you said, Nancy, is that if Russia, when Putin dies, because he is not immortal, even though I saw online, I, I saw it briefly and I, I have to check it out. I think Anton Gerashchenko or Jason Smart posted it that Putin's the one physician or health guru or something that was supposed to guarantee him life until the age of 120 dies in his 70s. Putin will die someday because we'll all die someday. That's just human nature. It just happens. I mean, it's just human reality. It happens regardless of what you believe or don't believe or think you can do or can't do, whatever. There will be a day when he will not be on this planet anymore. If that reckoning hasn't taken place, not only is there a real danger that he could be just demonized, not without cause for his atrocities, but, and then have someone else kind of position themselves against him to say, well, see, I'm so much better. And the circle could come around and he could be lionized once again. If you haven't reckoned with someone properly, then their legacy is up for grabs. That's basically what it comes down to, whether with Stalin, whether with Putin. So that, that process of self-reckoning, that process of holding yourselves as a nation accountable for your own atrocities is huge in genocide prevention, huge in atrocity prevention in general. Thank you, Gina. I've lost track of hands, Nancy. For every child's next. I think her hand's getting really tired. Go ahead for every child. Thank you, Nancy. I just want to say we are being heard. We do not need to feel like we are complacent. We are not complacent. We are learning. We are learning because we don't know enough. Not only do we not know enough, but there isn't enough to know. We need more things in place to study. We don't have, and we have not discovered, all of the tools that are simply required to accomplish what must be put in place. Slava, Ukraine. I'm not sure if it was James or Terry next. Sorry. It was Terry. Go ahead, Terry. Thank you, James. Gosh, again, several things have been cropping up in my mind. One of the things was fairly early on when Gina was replying to me. She talked about pe dividing people and putting people into different categories. And that, I feel, is something that probably a lot of it stems from Russia. Now I'm slightly more eyes wide open in this way of, I don't know, pitting black people against white people, older people against younger people, gay people against straight people, just every, and races, everything, everywhere. It's trying to get all of us angry about somebody else. I can even feel that now. I know I have to admit that with what's been going on in Ukraine for the last couple of years and the fact that I've been very keen on getting to understand what's going on, I have come to hate 
Russians a lot of the time. I am very glad when I see the invaders being blown up and all the rest of it and how I would love to see them not exist. But failing that, just to shut them all behind a huge big wall, let them get on with it. I also know, as Gina was saying, we are all human beings trying to come back to the fact that we know that the majority of them have actually just been brainwashed inconsistent dramatically, not dramatically, slowly and surreptitiously until they didn't know there was any other way of existing. And I know it goes back through the histories, but if we think about how we recognize the Holocaust, which is the big genocide that we all, most people recognize, but how the Germans took it on board, that's why they've been very hesitant about stepping forward recently, because they realized that they were at fault and they got to change their way of being. That's several other things that are how we do need to increase awareness. I would say when you went through the 10 steps, Gina, I thought prior to 24th of February, my view, I think, of genocide was probably step nine, the extermination. And without recognizing the others as being the pathway, the process of going through genocide, I would have thought that something like the Kachin massacre, which is where so many was lined up and shot constantly, and they were all watching each other being shot and dumped into a pit. That I think everybody can recognize as obvious genocide because they're just lining everybody up to shoot. Even the Holodomor, because it took a year or so for it all to happen and anyway it was all hidden and um, denied for so long at least now we've got lots of countries beginning to recognize that i think we've got to build this recognition of the other genocides that maybe haven't been recognized so much and again bring them all together which then made me think about what age do we introduce people to genocide waiting until they've left school can be too late. I remember when my kids were young, I bought them a couple of bunny rabbits. They were quite small and I had them in a little hutch and they got caught by a fox. I ran off to a garden centre, bought another two rabbits and got them in. They were lop-eared rabbits. So one of them had a, an ear that didn't flop in the right way. Consequently, my kids had called that one floppy. And then they said, when I've got these new ones. Why isn't Floppy's ear so floppy anymore? It happens as they get older. Anyway, to cut a long story short, a little bit later, the next rabbit got caught and I thought, I can't keep doing this. I think they were about seven and nine. I thought they've got to learn at some stage. I told them, and I was actually quite fascinated by my eldest son's reaction because I took them out there and showed them the rabbit that was dead. My eldest son said, can I touch its eye? It's how we must remember that kids don't see things in quite the same way. I know that my own mother died when I was nine, so it's the same age as my son coming across this rabbit. I know that I didn't, I can remember at the funeral looking around, wondering why everybody was looking so miserable, why they were singing strange songs at the funeral and all sorts of things. It wasn't until I was in my teens that I became more aware I don't remember 
apart from learning a little bit about the Holocaust in my secondary years, and admittedly it was quite a long time ago, but I don't remember any teachings about that. We learned about in history, you learned about general bits and pieces, but nothing as basic as genocide. Maybe it shouldn't be taught as genocide straight away, but I think it should be introduced in school that those young kids can avoid falling into the traps of feeling that way, moral lessons. Anyway, that's now got me very, my head is going off on one again. Again, I'm hoping that I make a bit of sense there and how yeah, we're, we are all doing it. Oh, final thing that I remember, it's a very small point in a way. I remember watching YouTube a few years ago and I was into all sorts of strange things, mainly to do with mental health. I remember getting drawn into something that was more scientific and at the end of it, they talked about the fact that it can take 120 years to go from the conception of an idea to its actual reality, to being accepted, which, and when you look around at all sorts of things, they can't always be solved overnight, but we can progress towards it. In that lecture, it was basically about how, I don't know, electricity maybe might have been thought up in a basic concept and then the next scientist came along and moved it on a bit further until we got to whoever it was, and I can't remember, who invented the light bulb and then how we've gone from the basic light bulb to where we are now and ending up on the moon, etc. How things grow. My thoughts are that we are 20 to 80 years, 70 years into understanding genocide. It is our role for our generation and everyone who's alive at the moment to make sure the awareness increases enough so that maybe by the time 30 or 40 years from now, because we know it's not an overnight thing, that maybe we've finally cracked it. I'll leave it to that. Terry, it's a good question as far as when and how to introduce children to genocide. I know that one of the places we've talked about previously, and I'll put some links in the thread as well, is several of the Holocaust museums in different countries. I think the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdoms are particularly effective in providing materials that will help with age-appropriate materials for teaching children about the Holocaust. That is is probably a good place to, it's a good a place to start as any because of the extensive documentation about it that's already been designed in that fashion. So I'll put some of those links up in, in the thread as well. Go ahead, Gina. Thank you. I was going to say that the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is just fantastic in the number of resources that it offers. And, and it's, as Nancy said, there is there have been a lot of efforts regarding genocide prevention, but that's not a set and forget. Every generation that comes up needs to be instructed. This is the, the legacy that we as humans have to pass on. This is where we got it right. This is where we got it really wrong. This is how we're not going to get it really wrong anymore. Something else occurred to me as Terry was speaking, and I'm trying to find the article because I have about 25 browser tabs open, but this was in a previous Space. We had looked at some articles, and I'm not sure if I ever actually ended up mentioning this, but in terms of how we investigate genocide, it, it has taken us a long time to even 
in human history because genocides preceded the, the Raphael Lemkin was his he, his attention was caught by the Armenian genocide. That's what really got his attention and set him on this path of thinking, how is it that one people can try to in whole or in part, because again, remember, it is in part, that's enough to, to trigger it, try to destroy another nation. Of course, historically, even back in centuries prior, and people did commit genocide, but now we have a name for it. In terms of investigating it, the one journal article that I unfortunately am not able to just pull up quickly now did make a point that if you look at the investigative techniques, it's really been only in the last 30, 20, 30 years that we've actually gotten to the place where we have the kind of structure and protocols and thinking and coordination to start doing that. So it is, it has been a slow learning curve for us of how do we investigate? Because contrary to what certainly I thought before I really started looking at this closely, World War II, the Nuremberg trials, that was not genocide. That charge didn't exist then. It's as we've gone beyond that, that we're really starting, it's the convention and post-convention that we are now starting to look at how do we prosecute this, but it is a much slower process and much more recent in terms of having a systematic way of investigating than we realize. If I can find that article, I will, because it does, it, it says it really well. Yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there as soon as I, I heard you mention that, Terry. Thank you. James, go ahead. Terry, the Kaiten massacre is a fascinating point in the road to on freedom it has a special place for me in chapter five because it it i went i read the part and then i said i wonder what's going on now with this to get past the 2018 publication date what i found is that the the massacre did occur soviets did it documents were turned over from leaders of um, what was the soviet union before that evidenced this and multiple um, hearings in Poland determined it was in fact factually done by the Soviets and a plain load of uh, people who were going to, who had been invited by Russia to go and commemorate this loss in Smolensk. They were, they were going to fly in there. The plane crashed. It was an accident apparently, but I'm still not going to fly on any Russian planes. And hastily, they wanted to send a contingent so that Poles could be represented at this commemoration. If you remember the story, you know that one of the planes, one of those planes and half of, half of the top of the government died. And somebody who was a spy basically within the Polish government got assigned the job of investigating. He said, oh, Tusk did it with Putin, which is crazy and all these other things, and they were celebrating the kind of Smolensk disaster, the airplane thing, more than they were celebrating, or I should say commemorating, and that's what I mean, commemorating the dead from Kaiten. And in 22, Putin said, it's not true. We have signed documents here admitting from German soldiers who participated in this, the Germans did it. They admitted it, we didn't do it. And it helped to, and, and this was in the 1940s, it was in the Ribbentrop, Molotov kind of range where whatever you want to call it, no, not whatever you want to call it. Russia was saying, oh, that was just a non-aggression pact. It was more than that. It was a joint effort to divide up Poland, among other things. They 
really did it together, but it was the Russian hands that were bloody. The point is at the end, they're denying it. They've set up this screen that obscures Poland from clearly seeing this because they've got all this other trouble and denial on kind of, they're splintered in their society. It just, to me, that goes to this terrible ability of Russia to do this. As um, Snyder points out, you don't have to think that, oh yeah, we can blame it on so and then move on because what they did was they cleared up Stalin's name in this step that they did. They cleaned him up. He, as recently as they have measured it, which was, I think, in 22, Stalin's approval rating within the Soviet Union was at 52%. And American politicians would kill for that. You know what I'm saying? Not well, not literally. That's a bad phrase. Okay, sorry, that's long. I said a lot. I've got another piece, but I think that's enough for right now. Go ahead, Gina. Wanted to, as I was searching for that article that talked about the relative recent development of actually investigating genocide, I want, I came across another book that I bookmarked and I wanted to share a bit from it because it definitely puts some perspective and, and clarify some things that we were talking about tonight. And this is from Confronting Evil, Engaging Our Responsibility to Prevent Genocide by James Waller. And as Samantha Power puts it in her book, too, it, it's been the 20th century has been dubbed the age of genocide. And just to give you some of the an idea of some of the statistics that Waller cites in this book, talking about the age of genocide, which began in the 20th century and unfortunately is continuing into the 21st, he said, and I quote, the past century saw a massive scale of systematic and intentional mass murder coupled with an unprecedented efficiency of the mechanisms and techniques of mass destruction. Genocidal death rates worldwide, 7,700 per 100,000, were an eightfold increase over the previous 69 centuries. On the historical heels of the physical and cultural genocide of North American indigenous peoples during the 19th century, yeah. the 20th century rides from mere complete annihilation of the Herreros by the Germans in Southwest Africa in 1904, the brutal assault on the Armenian population by the Turks between 1915 and 1932, to the implementation of Soviet man-made salmon against the Ukrainian kulaks in 1932-33 that left several million peasants starving to death, to the extermination of two-thirds of Europe's Jews during the Holocaust of 1939-45, to the massacre of approximately half a million people in Indonesia in 1965-66, to genocide or mass killings in Bangladesh, 1971, Burundi, 1972, Cambodia, 1975 to 1979, East Timor, 1975 to 1979, Argentina, 1976 to 1983, Guatemala, the 1980s through the 1990s, Sri Lanka, 1983 to 2009, Iraq, 1987 to 88, the former Yugoslavia, 1992 to 1995, and Rwanda. He notes that the list is not exhaustive. And he points out that even the most restrictive of definition estimates that at least 60 million men, women, and children were victims of genocide and mass killing 
in the past century, that is the 20th century, alone. On the upper end, political scientist Rudolf Rommel argues that close to 170 millions were done to death in the 20th century. Even for those who survive, genocide is a collective trauma, a redefining destruction that shatters their assumptive world and transforms societies for generations. He points out that even at the start of the 21st century, we had 20, almost 20 countries that were labeled at risk for genocide. For me, those numbers, I, I had to sit with those a moment, and I'll probably have to sit with them for a long time because I don't think I can get my head around them or my heart. He also offers some hope here, and he actually is asking people, why should you read this book on confronting evil, engaging our responsibility to prevent genocide? If you'll indulge me, I'll read a little bit more because he's a genocide scholar. I think that this uh, breaks open those who, the, the, the inside lives of those who do this work which is incredibly difficult work. Also, what lessons we ourselves as people who are learning from such scholars and learning from this history, what we can take away from that. He said that he was struck by three factors that seemed to draw people like himself and fellow genocide scholars to the work. What we can learn about human capacities in situations of extremity. What we can learn about making a difference in a world that seems intent on tearing itself apart and what we can learn about our capability for connection when we broaden our world beyond ourselves. He believes that those learnings can help explain not only Fowler's interest in genocide studies, but as justifications for studying it in the first place. And he notes that to study genocide is to recognize the psychological spectrum of human capacity in situations of extremity. And it's stress tests for what are how are ordinary people transformed by extraordinary circumstances? It doesn't mean that we're the unwitting victims, he says. Rather, these transformations are manifestations of our energy. He notes that we see the deep human capacity for resilience, even in the grip of the most dehumanizing and debilitating of conditions. He also points out, and then I'll wrap it up after here, um, in studying the motives of those who resist and rescue, we see the hope of what we can be in the face of inhumanity to our fellow humans. Often, though, we have to look deep into our inhumanity to find our humanity. It is in studying the behavior of the perpetrators that we stare into the abyss of the deep human capacity for evil, find that the abyss looks back into us. Perhaps most telling, though, is how the silence of bystander behavior reminds us of our deepest capacity of all, our capacity for stifling indifference in the face of human suffering. Everyday life provides us with glimpses into our capacities for resilience, good, evil, indifference. But the study of genocide, human behavior in extremis, brings us into a deeper awareness of who we are and of what we are capable. Again, that is James Waller's Confronting evil, engaging our responsibility to prevent genocide. I found those words just incredibly powerful and wanted to enter them into the record here and share them with you and even invite you to. We are getting close to the time. Getting close to time's up. Oh, I forgot. Nothing's coming this morning, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Anyway, James, I'm not sure who had their hand. I'm sorry. Nancy, I'm not sure who had their hand up first. Let's go for every child. That works. Thank you, Prince. I certainly will be quick. 
Thank you so much, Gina, for, for reading that. I was able to completely focus on, on, on your words, and, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, to uh, develop uh, better listening skills myself. Uh, the, the, the two words that struck me uh, in particular was increasing capacity. It just happens that I've had those two words written on my whiteboard on the side of the refrigerator, increased capacity. For the last seven or eight or nine months, you brought a new dimension to increasing capacity. I had something for James. Let's see if, you, if it will come to me quickly because I know we're needing to move along. Oh, James, I'll DM you when it comes to me because the time is short here. Slava Ukraine. Thank you. Terry, go ahead. Hi, Dane. One of my evolving thoughts that has been going on as I've become more and more aware of what's actually going on is this propensity for human beings to go one way or the other. That I know I've done things in my past that I'm not very proud of. I wouldn't actually call them evil, but my current thoughts about how I've felt about some of the Russians, I've felt is verging on that. It's very difficult sometimes to come back from that. That's where I'm sure we all feel this way, that occasionally we have to step away from everything and just do something to ground us again, go back to nature and look at innocent animals and just anything to stop the mind from going down those routes. This brings me back to the people in Ukraine and the soldiers on the front line and their depths of humanity by stepping back in and looking at it again. And instead of looking at all the horrors, you see the humanity, the way that the Ukrainian people are helping each other out. Admittedly, it's not 100% of them are helping each other, but the majority of them and the whole way of being that they have the ability to help us see the good side of human nature. One of my thoughts has been, again, coming back to the worldwide situation. Most of the empires of the past, all of the major countries of the past that have tried to dominate, there's been slavery or genocide or whatever it was called before we knew it was called. And I think a big step towards moving things on would be to try and encourage our respective governments to admit their failings. That's, it, it's a human trait that we always want to hide what we've done. But I think if we can accept that we have done things that we shouldn't have done to other people, that is a step in the right direction, a step towards healing and I think a lot of the time when there's an injustice being done to us as an individual, all we want to do is for that other person who's done whatever to us to just acknowledge it and accept it and promise that they'll do better. And on a global scheme, as Gina was saying, this world is actually far too small. We need to learn to get on. It was very different when Anglo-Saxon times or whatever, I only think of that phrase because of Dmitry Medvedev's corners Anglo-Saxon. The world was a much smaller place then. You were fighting against the next village or you were just in your own little community. But now our little community is actually the entire world. So maybe, say, one step is to try and get our governments to officially acknowledge 
the horrors that we have as individual countries done to others in the past. Maybe from that we can then move on. And I know that's, that is beginning to happen. I know it's been happening in Canada, but I do remember, I think Prince Charles went somewhere recently. I don't follow him very much, but he went as far as saying something that England had done elsewhere was not very good, but he stepped short. I can remember this. he stepped short of apologising. And I think we need to be more sorry what has gone on. We can't change it, but we can make sure it doesn't move on in the future. And that's an excellent point. And I think what you're talking about is empathy as, as much as anything else. And I think that's one of the reasons why recently I have been seeing more and more Ukrainian poets and starting to follow their work. And actually, Sunday mornings, my time when I co-host with Mockers, I've started doing a poetry reading. And in part is to remember and respect the, the poets and the artists of Ukraine who have had their lives just completely overturned and have gone to war and are or were sitting in trenches. And like Victoria Amelina, who set aside her writing to start documenting war crime atrocities, it's in respect for them. And it's interesting because it it really makes me self-reflect. And this week, we lost another Ukrainian poet and soldier, Maxim Krivstov, just a few days ago. I'll actually add his Instagram page to this thread as well, because there is so much of his poetry that is on these pages as well. And he just had a book of poetry published this past year. And unfortunately, it'll be the only one that he publishes now that he was killed. He and his ginger cat were killed in the trenches. I'm not sure exactly where. But what I note is that while some of the poetry on his Instagram page. And of course, auto-translate's not going to do a perfect job, but it does good enough for you to get his meaning and intent. There is some of that poetry that is really dark and you can see the pain, but also the resilience and the still loving of beauty and the hope for the future even in the depths of the trenches as a soldier. That, to me, is really just the epitome of the spirit that the best of us and most of us, all of us here, do have. It's part of our souls. It's part of who we are. And I regret that it has taken this monstrous event for me to learn more about these people because... There's a part of me that I had put aside for the everyday aspects of just daily life and getting by and, you know, the daily work grind and things like that. There's a part of me that I'd put aside that I've reconnected with because of the humanity and resilience that is every Ukrainian that I've met or that I've learned about through this war. I'm going to continue while I can't speak Ukrainian and I haven't really figured out uh, Cyril yet. I 
am going to continue to find and get translations of Ukrainian poets in because that through their words and us reading their words, those poets and those authors live on, their art lives on. And the legacy that Russia has tried to take away from Ukraine, stealing their language, eliminating that as eliminating part of their culture, as long as their words are on our lips, then Russia doesn't stand an effing chance for every child. Go ahead. Oh, yes, just real quickly. Uh, I would have just uh, done this as a DM for James, but uh, I think uh, there may be other people that need to hear it as well. I've had Samantha Power's book for probably several weeks before I was able to open it. And two or three different times I read three or four paragraphs and I couldn't bear to read anymore. In order to, to read this book at all, I have to do it with Audible so that I can follow the words and not have my own emotions get so so stirred up that I can't turn the next page. I highly recommend the book and Audible and realize that if it's too difficult to do, it's because it is difficult and Audible will help us overcome that. For every child, I read it out loud when I get stuck with that. I just find that when I'm talking it out, if I don't have the Audible copy, I read it to myself out loud because it gets me over that hump you're talking about. Thank you. Thank you. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. All right. It looks like we actually finished up at seven minutes past the hour, which is pretty amazing for us. I am, I'm really thankful for that. There's another topic that, that I would love to bring up, but I don't want to do that right now because it would be, it would lead to more. I will mention it in other places and perhaps we'll talk about it another time because that is i think it's a piece that that fits in here in that it's it can be important i think maybe i'm wrong we'll find out anyway as always gina i so appreciate you being with us i appreciate you period i appreciate you being with us every friday night now sunday nights also sunday nights at 10 p.m for an hour we try to keep it to an hour yeah that. That sort of makes me giggle, but we are really sincerely trying to keep it to an hour. And in those, we are going to go a little bit more in depth into some of the things maybe that Gina has written over the last couple of years that since a full-scale invasion started. And and I have to say that I really am enjoying it and really appreciate having that time to just look at things a little bit deeper and a little bit closer. So I wanted to say that. Nancy, did you have anything? I do see that Jana came up and put her hand up. So nope, I'm getting, yep. Now I think we'll probably be ready to wrap up here. I'm getting ready to uh, to post that link to Maxim Kristal Instagram page. I'm starting to uh, lose track of myself. <laughs> my, my brain starts to get fried a All little right. bit after about 12.45. I know you call yourself loopy after a certain time of night. And- and we've hit that. I, I feel bad that you guys are on the East Coast because this is this I enjoy this so much and I look forward to it so much. I always feel bad. It's like one in the morning. It's after one in the morning and you guys both have very busy lives and very busy days. Anyway, you guys got to be tired. Jana, real quick, can you uh, sum it up real quick? It is real quick. I came in late. You were talking about Samantha Power's book and I don't know what the name of the book is to look it up. I do have Audible. Yeah. That's all I need to know. When? 
is A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide by Samantha Power. Okay. Thank you. I will definitely no problem. I will definitely look it up. Thank you. No problem at all. Thank you so much. Okay. That's it. And now all right, Dina, give you your opportunity to say the things you say every Friday night that I appreciate so much. Go ahead. I appreciate, as I always say, being here. I learned so much. I feel like this is our seminar class, our Friday night graduate seminar in in genocide and actually in becoming human. I think that the work we're doing here, and it is work, that I do believe this will bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. I just encourage everyone to continue to learn, to study, to pay attention, to challenge, to speak truth to power, and never to give up because this literally is a matter of life and death for Ukraine and for human rights and human dignity. That's really all it comes down to is that we cannot give up. There is no alternative here. We're deluding ourselves if we think there are alternatives to giving up on human life. We're saying that only some people get to live. I think was it Prince Charles famously said regarding the international, the environmental crisis, I believe this was him, there is no plan B. It was one of the members of the royal family at Slate, and I can't remember. But closer to home a few years later, Zelensky and, and countless other Ukrainians have said, there's no option for us except to continue. We don't have another option. This is existential. That's really what it comes down to. It really is as simple as that. Thank you again. I look forward to hearing you and speaking with you again on Sunday night. As Prince said, though we're not turning this into any type of a pulpit here, if you see on my timeline that you would like to join one of the daily prayers I do for Ukraine, you are always more than welcome. You do not need to be Catholic, or you can just listen to the recordings and in whatever way you pray or address a higher power, a transcendent power, or even just engage with goodness itself. Please lift up Ukraine in that because that has powers. Thank you all. As always, I salute the people of Ukraine and those who are defending Ukraine and Lava Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy, and everybody who participated tonight. I had a feeling that this was going to happen and it was going to be a really good night and a very good conversation. It was. I'm sorry. You can't have an interview with Christina Hutt and then come and tell us about it and mention some of the things that you mentioned to me say, why don't we talk about that on Friday night? And and I'm like, yeah, that's going to be all of Friday night because I just knew it would be. And that's fine. It was a great conversation. And that's what matters more than anything. I think we all learn things. We have all gained some depth in our understanding of genocide. And that's why we're here. That's what matters. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gina. Thank you, Nancy.